Welcome to the 311th Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Elsa be gone. Uh, We had our first Florida tropical storm slash hurricane one come through, category one. Um, I guess it was category one for a little bit, and then it kind of came by Port Charlotte and went back down to a tropical storm. We had good bit of wind you know when you're in hurricane season and you get it get wind it gets windy and you kind of get used to it for a little bit but then when you haven't had rain and wind for a while um it certainly gets your attention so we had a had a good bit of wind uh, some gusts no real damage few few mangoes down but no mango trees down luckily a lot of lightning and um some backyard flooding uh not too bad you know, I guess in some way it's God's way of restoring the Florida water table. We've had drought, and it's been, uh, we certainly needed the water. came all at once. I think we got well over six inches uh, in a short time period. But all is well. Uh, back to outdoor training. Uh, again, looking forward to San Antonio 50K in September and a swim run in Austin in November and out to California for the marathon in December. So it should be good. Back to California or back to Texas for a 50 miler in January. That's that's what's um, on the tables, God willing, and the floods don't come, so to speak. So I wanted to start by talking about hurricane-free food. You know, when a disaster is about ready to strike, we all let our guards down, right? You go to the grocery store and you snack up on all those comfort foods because you're going to be locked inside and you can't get anywhere and, you know, the end may be near. And so people are buying all kinds of Doritos and popcorn and all those kind of crazy things. And eating all the meat in the freezer in case it goes bad. I actually went to Sam's the Friday before the weekend and mainly to pick up some supplies for the dogs. Um, and, you know, it's amazing what was sold out, you know, the junk food, the pies, the cakes, the meat area, you know, I mean, that's the people's last meal. There's still lots of vegetables left to buy. Um, but again, you know, I think people think, well, you know, we're going to be locked in and it's just one day of the year. We might as well be comfortable. And, you know, um, of course it's, it's just not one, one day, um, you know, the extra chips before the hurricane, right? Because you don't save them for the hurricane and actually the hurricane, our weather came in the night, so you should be sleeping. Um, but you know, a lot of people get up when there's a tornado warning and you go to your safe room and you have to eat something or not. Um, but, you know, it can be a lot of calories that uh, get added on in those days where we consider it free food. Um, you know, anything goes for now. We'll get takeout because we're putting up our shutters or we'll do, you know, this or that. But I guess there's still calories being burned when you're putting up wind shutters and carrying extra water and maybe getting some sandbags. But then there's that time inside watching it rain where you're not getting your exercise. And, of course, if you add, we just had Father's Day and Mother's Day and Fourth of July and all those foods, it it can throw people off the plant-based wagon pretty easy. The beauty of being plant-based is most of our food lasts really good through a hurricane and several days later if the power happens to be out, you know, potatoes last, rice and beans last. So, you know, if anybody's going to survive in the 
2020 somethings, it's going to be plant-based people because our food is not really perishable. You know, our vegetables may go um, in a few days or a week, but for the most part, we have a lot of other, you know, our starches and grains and things like that are, are going to last. And if you have that backyard garden, you know, there's still an opportunity for some tomatoes and peppers and mangoes. You know, it could be a fruitarian down here in Florida for a good long time. I'm happy to report that mango harvest season is going fabulous. And, uh, you know, we're harvesting mangoes at different ages so that you know, we can freeze some, eat some, and uh, again, tremendous amount of vitamin C, good good fiber, although the ones down here are, are low in, you know, the fiber that you can, they're not stringy or anything, they're very smooth, but, um, you know, pineapples are in season, melons are in season, blueberries are around, so you could be a fruit fruititarian during hurricane season and, you know, really, really do really well if you, you kind of put your mind to it as opposed to just say, okay, it's a free-for-all and you know, let's feel sorry for ourselves and, you know, eat all the junk food that we can get a hold of. And then I was thinking about, you know, the days of, um, you know, we miss exercise and, and what, what what does that actually mean? And, you know, I took a, just an example. If you were to say do about an hour of exercise a day or the equivalent of about a five miles of running or six or seven miles walking or eight to ten miles biking, probably all about the same caloric, you know, depends on your weight and size and speed, but about 500 calories a day. And let's say you average the six days a week and 52 weeks out of a year, that's 156,000 calories or the potential to, if you do it and you don't replace those calories with excessive food, 43 pounds lost a year, or perhaps, uh, you know, uh, it could be gained if you're not doing those exercises. Or if you just say, okay, you do six on average, you do six days of exercise a week. And if you miss, uh, say, three workouts a month times 12, it's 18,000 calories. So if you miss miss three of those workouts a month, that could be about five pounds swing um, over a a 12 month time without really changing your intake, uh, so to speak. And I know there's a lot of controversy around that because uh, we tend to exercise more and then take in more calories or exercise less and take in less calories because of our appetite being driven by exercise. But nevertheless, if, if that is what you're trying to use exercise for or that is part of your daily mobility and uh, you know movement um, calorie burn, then it can become significant. And I got to say, I'm not really a fan of using exercise as a weight loss mean because I, I really do think that, um, again, personally, when I exercise more, I get I, my appetite increases and, I, you know, it tends to kind of uh, even itself out. But you do have to look at when you're not exercising as much, you know, at, you know, have to think, take into effect what you're taking in in, in your caloric intake because there seems to be a lag you know when you're maybe recovering from a race and you're not exercising as much but your appetite doesn't really go to down very quick so you have that little lag time where i think it can really catch up with you so it's, it's something to something to contemplate and something perhaps to you know make you get out and move a little bit every day just to kind of keep up with your caloric intake needs um, i also you know think that exercise of course does a whole lot of other good things as we've talked about as far as mobility and moving your joints and mixing it up and keeping um, you know helping to 
preserve muscle and increase mitochondrial function. And we know as far as diabetics go, that exercise, it doesn't have to be fast. And, you know, your tongue doesn't have to hang in the ground and you'd be panting, but that long, slow, sustained effort is really, really good uh, at helping to develop mitochondria that are good fat burners and to keep that lactic acid level down when you exercise. So make sure you're steady uh, in your exercise and, and, and keep that up. I wanted to talk a little bit about a study today that's in um, this month's Nature magazine, and it is looking at the, uh, they, they call it Designer Fiber Meals Sway Human Gut Microbes, and it's uh, by Avner Leshman and Aaron Elenow. And um, then there was a little bit of a uh, commentary uh, as well that, that was really good. But they looked at mice and giving them fiber. And the first, you know, there's been studies done before, uh, and then I've talked about them, that if you take um, a mouse that doesn't have any gut bacteria, they're called a, you know, a sterile mice, and you introduce microbes that are associated from an obese mouse into that mouse, and you give them a um, high-fiber diet, the mouse doesn't become obese, but if you give them a fatty diet, then the mouse becomes obese. And they've, they've um, looked at certain bacteria, bacteroides is one uh, that's been a uh, bacterium that is associated with a decreased incidence of, of obesity, and people that are obese tend to have a lower level of these different various bacteroides species. So the, they decided this study was about what, um, what does feeding mice fiber, you know, do as far as their microbiome and what does it do to the microbiome uh, DNA as far as enzymes to metabolize food. And so they, they took, um, they fed these mice they did a mouse study, and then they actually did a human study. And they, they kept this diet. They kept a high-saturated fat, low-fruit and vegetable diet. And they gave these mice um, bacteroides. And if they gave them low fiber, they, they didn't, it didn't really protect them uh, from becoming obese. So they wanted to look to see if fiber might actually increase bacteroides microbiome. So they fed these mice, uh, again, that... Um, they fed them a high-fat, low-fruit-and-vegetable diet, and then they gave them obese human gut microbes. And then they fed them three different kinds of fiber. And um, then they used that fiber to actually feed humans and do a pilot-controlled study in humans as well. So what they looked at are enzymes that metabolize carbohydrates, and different metabolic pathways that help to process food. And they use fiber from the endosperm of peas. They use vesicular pulp of oranges. And they use the bran of barley. And then they looked at the enzymes that were produced to break these fibers down. So they took mice that didn't have any uh, bacteria in their colons, and they gave them the microbiome of uh, obese women fecal transplant samples. And then they gave them a diet of high saturated fat, low vegetables. And then they gave them one of the three fibers, and then they would switch them around. 
and yeah. they use DNA um, uh, measuring techniques to look at the back to identify the particular bacteria. And they looked at enzymes that were induced by those uh, bacteria and the genes encoding for them. So it was a quite uh, elaborate study. And so what they noticed that was that orange and pea fiber increased certain genes, um, coding for certain enzymes, um, and that barley um, induced a, a different enzyme. Um, and the orange and pea induced a certain varieties of bacteroides, and the pea fiber introduced certain sort of, of bacteroides. And barley somewhat decreased some of them, but increased some of the other bacteroides features. So they all increased good bacteroides bacteria, but different varieties. And then they looked at um, people, and they did 13 obese people with a BMI of, uh, they were either obese or a BMI greater than 27, and they gave them 45 day, days of a high saturated fat, low vegetable fiber diet. And then they gave them uh, a single snack, 35 grams of fiber that contained 8 grams of fiber. And then every seven days they would increase um, the a couple more snacks and use different snacks out of those three different fibers. And what they found was that, um, again, uh, if they looked at the microbiome of obese people, they had less bacteroides species. But giving them more fiber resulted in more genes that were encoded for to make proteins needed to digest those fibers. So what actually happened was by giving obese people on a high-fat, low-vegetable diet fiber, it would change their microbiome's genetic ability to produce enzymes to actually handle that fiber. So basically, you were changing the genes of the micro by the dietary changes that they, that they gave them. More fiber resulted, more fiber types resulted in the greatest rise in the number of microbial genes that are involved in metabolism. And so not only did the gut microbiome become more bacteroides, but it produced more enzymes that were in the, in the native bacteria that were able to digest the fiber. So the good news from all that in a long con convoluted way is that what we eat not only influences us, but it influences our gut microbiome. And that just not any fiber, but variety of fiber will induce different um, enzymes in our bacteria that we can handle it. So sometimes people say, well, I can't digest this or I can't digest that. Uh, I get bloated when I eat this. Well, this gives hope that perhaps small amounts of things that are introduced to people will eventually lead to them being able to tolerate that because they're changing their gut microbiome, but they're also changing the ability of those, those bacteria to produce genes that help with digestion. So I, I thought that that was, you know, um, very encouraging and something for 
you know, people to have hope that if they can't eat certain foods because it doesn't seem to agree with them, especially early on when they're changing maybe from a standard American diet to a plant-based diet, people feel bloated and they have a lot of gas. And again, their microbiome is changing. So you're getting more bacteria that are associated with a breakdown of uh, fiber and uh, anti and production of anti-inflammatories. And also they were able to show that it also enhanced their immune function. So by eating fiber of different varieties, you can get bacteria of different varieties and you can uh, enhance the bacteria's that you already have's ability to break down these fibers and 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 a lot of them are associated with modulation of uh, immune function. So um, all good things and all encouraging things to you know keep eating a wide variety and of uh, fruits and vegetables. And in, in our practice, you know, we we talk about eating a very colorful plate and seeing how many vegetables that you fruits and vegetables, different ones that you can actually eat. People complain that they get bored with the plant-based diet, and I'm not really sure um, how that is when there are so many different varieties of fruits and vegetables. I think they get frustrated with their abilities to fix them in ways that they appreciate them, and they fall back into their old sad American diet ways and all those craving and bacteria come back very quickly from the old days and actually change some of our cravings and our immune system and everything else. So when we're back and forth, back and forth, we can't we, we can't really establish um, perhaps, you know, I can't prove it, but you I can't, you know, we don't establish a gut microbiome that's steady, so to speak. It's always in in change and modulation. So one day you eat it, one day you don't. When you know you go for a little bit and then you don't. And I think it's it probably contributes to why people have difficulty over time making the change to a plant-based diet completely because, again, this back and forth, back and forth, they never really get a good reg- a good gut regimen um, laid down. There have been studies done looking at the most diverse gut microbiome, and they actually found uh, that to be in the Amish population because they eat such a wide variety of fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So if you are having trouble, you know, uh, and you're making the switch to a plant-based diet, you might just back off a little bit and look at the foods that are causing you trouble and and introduce them slowly over time. And maybe you're going to introduce that food once a week, just like they did in the study, just to see um, if your gut gradually becomes able to tolerate those foods. Now, you know, I'm talking about um, some symptoms and, you know, this gets confused with allergies and uh, that's such a very difficult word as far as, you know, true allergies versus, you know, where people have an autoimmune response and they have a change in their white cells and inflammatory markers versus perhaps they have some gut discomfort or, you know, ability to tolerate things. So, uh, you know, you have to take that with, you know, in the context of your own issues. But if you're, you know, if you're truly allergic to something that causes you hives, um, then this is not what I'm talking about. But if you're, you know, if it's an intolerance that causes, you know, gassiness or GI distress or you have bouts of constipation, diarrhea, then this might be the area where, you know, you start to focus. 
people that have, you know, hives for no apparent reason. Uh, again, you know, introducing some things very, very slowly and see whether or not it triggers is, you know, kind of a good way to go. Um, what we do know is the more fiber than you can get in, um, the more calming it is for your immune system. And so it's, it's going to help not hinder uh, any of these reactions. So what's more motivating? Um, is it more motivating if somebody says you can't do something? Uh, I had Dr. Dick Willard in the podcast or talked to, about him and his running and his injury as a child. And the doctor said he could never do a bunch of different things. And, um, you know, he went on to do all kinds of great things. And, you know, now at 78, he's training for a marathon, but it's still in the back of his mind that somebody said he can't. And to some degree, that's always been a motivation for him that at least he should try. But I hear that story quite often that people say you can't, uh, and then you do. I've certainly been the product of that in some respects. I was told that I was crazy to train for my first marathon, but you know, I knew that I, I, could, I could do it, and I just plowed one step in, in front of the other. Um, the odds were against me to go to medical school, you know, uh, but because, you know, I had something to prove I, uh, to myself that I could get in, and with hard work, I, I give it a shot, and, and it worked out, and, and that was a driving. You know, there's, there's several things that have been, have driven me over the years, being told that, you know, chances are slim, or that I wouldn't be able to do it or I was crazy for trying and I went ahead and did it anyway and, you know, um, some things didn't work out completely. Some things had to be changed a little bit perhaps, but and some things worked out because of it maybe. Uh, but it was it's always been a bit of a driving that, you know, you can't uh, and yes, I will. Does that drive you or... Is it out there that, you know, positive reinforcement, somebody saying you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And certainly there's studies out there where people were running a marathon and you're feeling awful and you come around a corner and people are cheering and they're not cheering for you, but they're cheering for somebody. But you see, you hear the people cheering and you pick up your pace after you thought you were, you know, you, you given all you could, you have, uh, people tend to run across the finish line. I just watched the Western States 100 mile race and, you know, people come up to that finishing line at, you know, I think the last finisher was 29 hours and 48 minutes. The cutoff time was 30 hours. And you see them jogging and happy across the finish line um, after, you know, probably struggling quite a bit, considering that the guy that won the race was, you know, just under 15 hours. So obviously they were out there suffering a lot longer. But hearing the crowd and seeing the finish line gave them new hope and they were able to do it. So certainly positive behavior uh, helps. There's been study where cyclists were flashed happy faces, even to the point where they couldn't see the happy face. And they, uh, they actually were able to ride longer, even though they thought that they were, they were done. They could push on a little bit. So there's that. And, you know, and then we're inspired by the, the hard luck story. You know, we see it at the Super Bowl. They, they don't show the people that, you know, everything came easy. They show the people that really had to struggle and um, overcome a lot of life circumstance to, to be winners. And the Olympics are coming up. And, you know, we're going to hear a lot of those stories. NBC is great for having these stories about the different athletes and, and what they've done to 
overcome obstacles to, to get to the Olympics. And so that that is motivating as well. So I guess the question comes in, you know, what, how would we apply these things to change and things that perhaps we need to do, but we don't necessarily want to do? Because I think that's when it comes down to changing nutrition. I think most people were happy eating you know, if, if everybody were left to their own regards and you could have, you know, little Debbie's and eat out every night and have popcorn and pizza and all these good things and you'd never gain a pound and you'd never get a heart disease or diabetes and you'd never get cancer, that'd be a great, that would be a great thing. I think everybody would say, yeah, I'll take this sweet, sweet uh, chocolate drink over uh, water, you know, given the option, you know, given the dopamine and serotonin rise that I'll get from this, you know, if it wasn't going to hurt me. So the thing that's kind of holds people back is, you know, okay, there's going to be some long-term consequences for this. And certainly people can get by on a poor diet for a good while. You can survive, but not necessarily thrive. And the thrive is a really big um, a big ratio, you know, if you've been surviving and you don't feel that bad, then you really don't know that you're not thriving. And if you're surviving for a long time and you feel bad, then you may not think you can feel good. And that becomes your new norm. So change becomes just another step that's very, very difficult to do. So you know, which of these situations makes change better? You know, there was a article in uh, my daily paper that looked at uh, and talked about weight stigma uh, is becoming a big burden. And there's actually groups, you know, that clubs that people have where they can go and not be bullied by their appearance or how they, you know, what what they choose to eat or whatever. And, you know, I... uh, Everybody knows a reformed person. You know, my dad lost a bunch of weight, and he told his sisters that, you know, they were overweight. You know, people that quit smoking are very intolerant of other smokers, you know. So we become fairly vocal, you know, at our disgust for other people's behavior once we've changed ours and cleaned up ours, so to speak, even though we all have room for improvement. We tend to look, you know... um, it's just human nature. So how, you know, how would we help people to change um, or how would we help ourselves to maintain change given the choice of pause, continued positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement? And, and you know, I guess different people respond to, to different things. And that's what makes, you know, uh, that's what makes change, again, that we don't necessarily want so, so difficult. If you want to run a marathon um, and people say you shouldn't run a marathon, then you're going to do what you can to run the marathon. It doesn't really matter whether they're cheering you on or saying you can't. Maybe, you, you know, you can derive, again, power from their doubt. Um, but it doesn't really stop you that they're not cheering you on because you really want it. And if it's, and if you, you know, I think everybody wants to be healthy and they don't want to feel bad. And there are even people that have told me that they lost weight and they started eating plant-based and they felt so much better, but they couldn't maintain it. 
And again, I'm, I'm very sure that if you went out with a bunch of friends and they say, hey, you know, you're overweight, you shouldn't eat that, you would be very offended. Um, you shouldn't eat that because you have diabetes or you should put that back because it's not good for you. Uh, who are they to say that? It's not their business. Why should they do that? And even though they may have been coming from a place where they actually cared about you, but you still take offense to it because you want to still have that option, perhaps, that you can do it on your own and you don't have to be, um, you, you, you don't have to prove, some, you don't have anything that you have to prove to anybody. Um, I've heard that in the practice that, you know, I'm retired, I can do what I want, I don't have anything to prove to anybody. And that's all true. And it is our choice to be able to do what we want when we want to do it, especially as we get older. So making these changes when perhaps there's no guarantee that it's going to necessarily make us live longer, uh, it can't be sure. Um, so it's kind of the fear of missing out, perhaps, that makes this positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement not too effective. We even experience it in the office. You know, we changed our practice so we would get to spend more time with people and their initial visit may be an hour, an hour and a half and we go through great lengths to go through their medical history and get their records and talk about what they, their goals are and their desires and all the bad things that they've been through with traditional health care. Yet, when, you know, they, they're looking at their watch sometimes and it's like, you know, when can I get out of here? Because I really don't want to have to face this so much longer. Even if they've lost weight, they're still not, you know, something is still missing uh, that they can't put their finger on. They're just not happy about this change because, again, this thought about having to give something up perhaps and not being able to do exactly what you want or maybe it's not your idea, it's being forced upon you. And then if you add on top of that that maybe you're trying to cook for your family and they don't appreciate it and they don't want to eat what you want to eat and then you want, you know, you have to make two or three different meals, it becomes very frustrating. And then, you know, again, people just sink back into the standard American diet along with the gut microbes that they're going to get to, to go along with those things. So I'm rambling a bit, but I really don't know the answer, and, and, I, and I wish I did know the answer. Uh, we try to support people where they are, and, you know, the more I, I have worked with people to change their diet, the more I, you know, I, I believe that we have to start where people are and take baby steps, even if the baby steps are um, not getting them where they need to be as quickly as they need to be. But I, I think sometimes that, you know, those little steps, putting your foot in the water, seeing that, okay, it's not so bad. I can eat oatmeal for breakfast. I can eat some blueberries. Uh, I can have a salad most days. Or if I go out, I can choose good foods. Even though I'm going out, there may be some oil. So, I mean, you know, some people have to be there. Um, but I think, again, you, you need to know that when you are there, um, it's still a process and you can't expect miracles. You know, you get what you, get, you put into it, so to speak. Um, radical change is certainly for the few. Um, I've seen very few people that just turn the switch. Most of the time it's associated with a life threatening situation and they're able to throw the switch and just go all in. There are people that are determined people 
Uh, I had Nanette Rogers, and she won her age group again in the 5K at 85 this week. Congratulations, Nanette, you know, who just turned the switch, going to be plant-based, and that's just all there is to it. And Dr. Furman says 119 should be a good weight for me, then I'll stay 119 for the rest of my life. That's just it. Turn the switch. But that's not, that's not the norm. Um, most, people, um, most people have more struggles. And I don't think you can beat yourself up over the struggle, but I don't, I don't want people to give up over the struggle. And, you know, I like to think that, you know, Addie and I don't sugarcoat it. Um, sometimes my nurse will say I should use kid gloves because maybe I'm a little bit, uh, yeah, you know, too frank and forward with people. Um, you know, I know people are laughing out there. And it's like, oh, my God, yes. Um, but... You know, I, 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 I do want, um, you know, we do sincerely want to help people achieve optimal health and wellness. We want people to be able to see both sides of the story and make decisions for themselves and, and choose a healthier lifestyle. We really want that. And, and we, take, we take people's struggles to heart and we carry those struggles with us. Um, and, you know, and, 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 we, and we celebrate the successes as well. Sometimes people, you know, email us and say, well, Dr. So-and-so said this or Dr. So-and-so said this or, you know, there's a difference in the different camps. And, you know, the only thing I can say is that we actually treat patients in our practice. It's a, it's a hands-on practice with Eddie, Delaney, Minerch, and I. And we take time to try to work with people and figure out what their problems are, what their goals are, and and help them achieve them. Um, we don't walk in. I never walk in with a prescription pad. Uh, anybody that's been in my office knows that I don't sit in front of a computer. I, I sit with my chair backed up against the wall and speak with them. Um, I often take my coat off and get on the ground and show people the exercises and stretches that I, I, I want them to, to learn how to do and go over mobility with them. Um, we have a members only website that, you know, uh, Addie does demonstrations and we have wellness challenges where, you know, she does demonstrations of exercises online for people. Uh, we do zoom calls where we troubleshoot back pain. We troubleshoot knee pain. Uh, the beauty of being an endurance athlete, um, and I would should say endurance athletes is that Addie and I have both had our, um, share of overuse injuries and worked our way through them. Um, I'm an older individual um, in the grand masters age group. So uh, certainly I, uh, I can walk the walk as far as older people and what you can do or can't do and am trying to push the limits. And, um, you, know, I, you know, we don't ask people to do what we don't do. And the diva, you know, at 88, my mother, uh, you know, she sets a, a good example for that age group. So we have kind of all the age groups covered in our practice and, you know, what you can achieve and, and how you might do it and the struggles that we've all had. So, you know, I um, sometimes, again, sometimes I get a little disappointed in our, our ability to make ways and maybe our, my, our approaches aren't the best in the world sometimes and we have to back up and redirect. It's a learning process for everybody. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's what I love about what I do is to be able to sit back and 
uh, try to figure out what's wrong and try to help people figure out what's wrong and what's right and how they might change and why they might want to and give them some information to share with others. Um, so if you'd like to be a part of this, um, you know, we, we certainly put in a lot of effort to, to try to help people at a, at a very low cost. I mean, a lot of gym memberships are a lot more expensive and you get a lot less. Um, the thing about us is we want you to come and see us. We want you to come to nutrition class. We want to turn it on as opposed to a, a gym membership where they're hoping you never show up. Um, it's not that way with us. We're not, we don't have people as members of the practice that, uh, we hope never call us. Um, we actually call them if we haven't heard from them in a while uh, because we want people to take part of all the different things we have to offer and we want them to be successful. Uh, and for them to be successful, it's not just about being on enough medicines to have your blood pressure and your cholesterol under control, but it's um, about having the support um, to be able to make very difficult changes in life um, when Maybe there's not a, not, not enough, a lot of other support around. So um, if you like what I say, I would love for you to go over uh, to iTunes and give, uh, give the podcast a five-star rating. I'd love for you to visit our website at drdelaney.com. Sign up for our newsletter if you want to get a monthly newsletter from us. Um, Email me with questions, jamie at drdelaney.com. It's J-A-M-I at drdelaney.com. And the website is drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y. Um, if you have some interest in the practice, I would be I would love to talk to you on the phone um, at no charge uh, to see whether the practice is a fit for you. Um, not everybody's a fit. Like I said, we're, we're interested in make people um, getting people to their optimal health and wellness. And we want to challenge people. So if you'd like uh, to be involved in that, we'd love to hear from you. Um, I put a little uh, note in the show notes. Uh, you can get our cookbook, Plant-Based Wellness Cookbook, The Doctor, The Dietitian, and The Divas. There's a link to Amazon there. There's also going to be a, there's also a link to Grounds and Hounds. I don't get anything from them. I like what they do, and I like their coffee, so I, I give them a plug. I don't take anything from this podcast, as you know, with the dogs barking in the background. I don't have editors. I do it all on my own. So excuse when the dog barks. <laughs> they do sing on command. And thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for co-hosting, Vinny. You did a great job tonight. Sophie, Gretchen, thank you as well. Nice barking. <laughs>